Fresh New Shorts offers you new short stories from award-winning authors. Today's story is by John Blackmore and is found in A Physicist's Guide to Love and Other Natural Phenomena. This episode features atomic distances. An electrician moves to Florida and becomes addicted to saving people in mortal situations after trying to revive a friend. He is exhilarated by the energy released as people navigate the nanometers that separate life from death. Atomic Distances From the beach, you would not imagine the violence in mid-ocean. Some 250 miles south, Tropical Storm Betty was whipping up a spiral of sea the size of Belgium. Betty was a wild child. Wind speeds over 60 miles per hour, well on her way to becoming a full-blown hurricane. She had already claimed three Cuban fishing boats and 17 pescatores. Currents would be treacherous tonight. Two parties, high school kids, had gathered on the beach a few miles from the hustle and dazzle of the pier. It was the end of summer. September was bearing down on them with its grown-up starch, so at odds with the smells of coconut lotion, schemes to get beer, and fumblings with a girl or a boy you just met at, like, Tony's Tacos. One group had already lit a small fire on the sand, even though Cocoa Beach didn't let burn permits until Halloween due to turtles nesting. Both parties had digital players connected to pop-can speakers blaring a mash of tunes and rich, big sound. Both had about a dozen teenagers, rolling rock and coolers, and as a token of the childhood they were so anxious to shed, marshmallows to brown and flame. Anticipation jumped like popcorn under my skin. My nose had started to run, my eyes water. My normal calm broke into jittery, anxious pieces. Would any of them make a dash to the ocean? I had come to this stretch of beach for the past three evenings, ever since Betty was first born as a tropical depression. It was a popular spot for school kids to gather, close enough to a parking lot, far enough to be left on your own. About ten years ago, I was at the same precious stage as the kids on the beach, this launch pad, when the distance between life and death was measured in light years. Tonight, I had skipped my shifts, stubbornly stuck on the chance someone would bolt for the water. Perhaps it was just wishful, but this seemed like the night. It was calm. The sky was losing color out at the horizon. The first stars poked through, as if the proximity of Canaveral's rockets drew them, curious to see what might happen. I had set up in the parking lot about 400 yards from each of the two parties. I had attached the telescope to its tripod. It was a surprisingly small, dark blue tube, a sawed-off astronomy cannon. It promised to reveal eight of the planets and 70 other galaxies. I sat on a director's chair that elevated me to look down into the eyepiece that stuck out from the telescope barrel. As dusk progressed, they would forget I was here, the guy with his telescope. 
Two nights ago, I had spotted the first of the late summer meteor showers. I had planned my outfit carefully. Nylon shorts, long-sleeve running shirt, flip-flops to kick off in the dash down the beach, a diver's Vortec headlamp, good to hundreds of feet beneath the surface. My hands were sweating. I rubbed them together. I kept a lifeguard's red rescue can at my feet, with its large loop harness to slip over my body and seven feet of nylon rope that would trail the float through the water if I had the occasion to bolt into it. It was low tide. The scalloped sand glistened in the twilight. A channel of white foam coursed seaward. I knew that was the rip current. The sound of waves was soothing, lilting, despite the beat of Betty's furious heart. I took a deep breath to calm myself. Rip currents, I knew, were killers. It was the Mexican who sparked my addiction. Like me, he was an electrician, and we were both working on a 12-bedroom mansion, one of my first jobs after coming south to Florida. The blueprints called for a variety of rooms, all of them requiring more than code wiring or simple lights and outlets. I remember a screening room, guest living room, a pet room, an aviary, and the zen space with no right-angle walls. We wired for heated floors in one room, in Florida, and installed a cooling mist dispenser and fan box in another. Mixed services, voltages, amps, a little bit of everything. The Mexican was a good electrician, thorough, clean, and organized. He thought everything through, running the wires inside his head before drilling any holes in the walls. His junction box was a thing of beauty, the most methodically laid out set of breakers and wiring I'd ever seen. Mexican wasn't his real name. The boss christened him that as a lark. Until I joined, he was the only member of the crew who wasn't Jesus, Javier, or Carlos. The boss had an amateur sense of irony. The Mexican's parents must have been Vikings. He was so blonde, so blue-eyed. The Mexican was on the floor of the Zen room, fixing a problem in the 240-volt service required for the electric sauna. He explained it was used in a form of yoga that involved sweating. I was on a double ladder above him, working the normal line for a complicated set of lights in the ceiling, small LED fixtures to be rayed in a precise pattern that mimicked a constellation visible from Mount Fuji. I was focused on the tiny bulbs when bright blue light flashed below me. The Mexican flew across the room, scudding to a halt in the 50-degree corner like a rag doll. I leapt down the ladder. His heart was a chaotic tangle of weak beats. His breathing was shallow. And then, suddenly, gone. I called out for the boss. I called out in Spanish for help. I started mouth-to-mouth in CPR. That's when I first became aware of it. In between the breaths and pumping his non-responsive chest, not so much tension or fear, it was something else. I breathed into his dry, coffee filter mouth. I stopped and pressed two, three, four on his quavery heart. His eyes opened, fluttered, 
alive. I didn't know why, but I nearly wet myself. He'd be there, coming back, and then his eyes would close, and he'd be gone. He was yo-yoing from life to death as I worked on him. About the fourth go-round of mouth-to-mouth and cardiac resuscitation, I was aware of the crowd that had gathered. An ambulance was coming, someone said. Hang on, hang in there. The Mexican kept slipping back and forth. His open eyes could see me, and then they looked through me. Two, three, four, I pressed his heart. The feeling. In my hands, in my mouth, the gulf between life and death shrunk to this infinitesimal distance. One moment, the Mexican was alive, struggling under my chest, crushing pushes and clumsy breaths, and the next, he was gone. The paramedics pulled me off. They put an oxygen mask over his mouth and defibrillated him. His torso humped with the jolt, his mouth gagged open. Silence in the Zen room. Another charge. Even deeper silence. They carried him away in a flurry, as if time would make the difference, when we all knew time no longer mattered. I knew he was dead. I was there. I was there. The boss told me to take the rest of the day off. It was a Thursday. Take Friday off too, he said. He thought I was a pretty decent fellow for leaping into action the way I did. But I didn't think the same thing. I was ashamed. Ashamed at how it had made me feel. At home, I paced my small apartment. It was the adrenaline of the moment, I said. The call to action. The shock. I bought a bottle of Malibu rum, trying to sit in my armchair and just drink. But I would leap up and walk about, running the whole experience through my head again and again and again. The Mexican seesawing between life and death. No matter how much I drank, I couldn't come down from the moment. It kept sobering off the alcohol. My skin was electrified. My scalp tingled, like I was the one who had been electrocuted. But by Saturday, the buzz had gone, replaced by a thick stew of depression. I thought it was acknowledging the Mexican's death, a post-trauma reaction. But we weren't friends. I didn't even know his real name. I called him the Mexican like everyone else. It was more like a craving, like you hadn't eaten for weeks but could smell food all around you. The way a gambler must feel after his first big game, a cokehead after his first hit. It was that way for a week. I was irritable. The work was double without him, and I had to interpret all of the Mexican's wiring. I realized that while his craft might have been beautiful, he carried the grand designs in his head. I cursed him as I rerouted wires into a system I could understand and try to master. You shouldn't be beating yourself up, the boss said. I was working on one of the larger bedrooms with a retractable movie screen and projector that was mounted into the ceiling. It was marvelous the way you jumped right in there. I nodded. I didn't really want to get into it with him. Once I volunteered at a hotline, you know, where you call if you're going to kill yourself? It was all because there is this girl, he said. He laughed to himself. I signed up, but I couldn't take it. The responsibility, you know? 
But you, you kept your cool. He shook his head. Remarkable. I hadn't thought of suicide hotlines. It was on my mind the whole day as I finished the work in the bedroom. The first hotline I joined was small scale, a church basement in the nowhere town of Lieberg off the 91. Old black phones with clear plastic Lego-sized buttons that blinked for incoming calls. Yellowing plaster walls papered with a dozen posters telling us Every 19 minutes, someone in America commits suicide. Coffee burned away in a church lady urn next to a box of Winn-Dixie donuts. We were an eclectic mix. Do-gooders and depressive survivors and the tattooed remains of 12-step programs. I was the only electrician. I took the three-hour training course, passed the test, and then audited calls for two weeks before I got my own phone. I rewired the church's fuses to breakers while I was waiting. During my second week at the Lieberg Ordinary Angels Suicide Hotline, the call came in that confirmed it all for me. A girl with a pretty, pill-slurry voice. A mixture of secondol and margaritas, as it later turned out. Elizabeth Taylor Thompson drawled into my phone, that she had had enough of this living thing. It was on me right away, the same sensation as with the Mexican. I tried to tell myself it was the excitement, finally, of the burst of activity. In my first two weeks, the calls I had were not from people really into killing themselves, but who really wanted to talk about the idea of it. Calm, confident hope. That's what I was supposed to be projecting. I kept her talking. The other volunteers moved their chairs to face me, watching the conversation as if I were landing a marlin. I could feel the drip, drip, drip of sweat down my back. The woman's speech continued to slow like a cassette player running out of batteries. Whole, wide spaces opened up in her sentences, gaps in her phrases like tectonic fissures. Elizabeth Taylor Thompson was stumbling her way to the big line. I was almost hyperventilating, willing myself to be calm. Elizabeth? Elizabeth? It sounds to me like you have a lot of people who care about you. Elizabeth? The others in the room leaning in, holding their breath. Elizabeth? She was dying inches from my ear. I caught the eye of one of the other new phonesters, a girl with straw blonde hair who liked to wear flannel shirts. I could see the fear in her face, the complete look of, thank God it's you, thank God I'm not talking to her. I could hear the tiny goldfish gulps of Elizabeth's fading lungs. This, as they say, was it. I've had enough of that living thing too, I shouted hoarsely into the phone. Do you hear me? I've had enough too. What? Elizabeth blurred. The sudden switch woke her up. I've had enough too, I said. Where are you? Where are you, goddammit? I was reprimanded later when the supervisor reviewed the tapes, but Elizabeth was still talking to me when the police pounded on the door, waited one heartbeat, and then broke in. Oh, God, she whispered as they picked her up. 
her final contact, a long, sensuous breath into the receiver. Pure, uncut lightning crackled under my skin. Every sense was hyper-acute. My heart raced. I was dizzy with the intense sensation of hearing someone that close to dying, being with them as they traversed the infinitesimal atomic distance separating life and death. I signed up for more shifts. I found other churches, other hotlines. I started to volunteer every night. I was a suicide junkie, seeking other Elizabeths or Mexicans or anyone an electron breath away from the line. I had to go outside Orange County, taking every church's or charity's training course. I never let on I knew the signs of depression or techniques of reflective listening. I was afraid to admit I was doing this somewhere else, sitting in other basements and church parlors and closed-down staff lounges, drinking overdone coffee, eating Keebler elf cookies, mending broken fixtures and burnt outlets while waiting for the call. So why do you volunteer here? A girl named Cindy asked me. We were both helpers at the Gulfside Crisis Center, a mighty name for a straggly group in two construction trailers donated by a developer of gated communities. Cindy had pierced eyebrows and a Chinese dragon that crept out of the backside band of her low-rise jeans. You don't seem like the others. I shrugged, but she persisted. I'll tell them you were smoking in here. I don't smoke, I said. She took out a camel and waved it in my face. So, I said I'd tell them. Didn't say you did it. She smiled with the tangle of malevolent logic she thought she was weaving. You want to know why I do this? I'll tell you. I like to hear people that close to death, I told her. I held up my thumb and forefinger to indicate the vanishing point of distance. She smiled and started to nod her head slowly. I knew you were screwed up, she said, approvingly. I snatched the cigarette from her and put it in my mouth. Go on, light it, I said. Cindy was interested. She lit it. I told Lucas, the volunteer manager for Gulfside, that Cindy was smoking indoors. Not that it bothered me, but others might have asthma. He let her go the next week. She's not really the type we want doing this kind of thing, he confided. He smiled at me. Clearly, I was. Every 19 minutes, go to a movie, that's five who cross the line. Of course, for every successful suicide, there were 25 attempts. It was a rich and murky pool for someone like me. Full moon nights promised more calls. Those of us on the ends of the phones knew that, though the experts told us it didn't matter. Monday was the busiest day. Holidays were bad. Springtime, worse than winter. A jumper on an apartment building rooftop, calling in the end of his life by cell phone. A man with his head in a noose, standing on the wobbly Ikea chair he had assembled himself, talking on speaker. The naked man sending a webcam, immersed in a bathtub with precarious plugged-in ghetto blaster, 
plain rocket man with its heart stopping 120 volts. All these people playing at the edge, toying with those of us on the other side, daring us, save me. I walked home after my shifts when they were in town, drove home and embarked on frantic five-mile runs for those shifts outside the city. I had to work off the built-up static charge from connecting with these people, tight-roping their fraying lines. The buzz soaked into my pores, my marrow. But then the jag began to lose its height, its potency. It wasn't enough to be talking to them. I needed the immediacy. I signed on to volunteer at a palliative care hospice. Their death was in big supply. It was walking the halls in padded slippers and terry cloth housecoats. But somehow it wasn't satisfying. There was too much acceptance. Too many family members around the bed. Too many candles and rosary beads and calm music. The patients had already crossed the line. They were just waiting for the line to catch up. Some nights, I parked outside Elizabeth Taylor Thompson's apartment. About 25% of the people who attempt suicide tried again within a year. It was likely just a matter of time. I listened to the police band just in case. I wanted to be the one bursting in through Elizabeth's door. I wanted to hear and see and feel and be in the rush as death flapped its black leathery wings about the room. But I was too impatient to keep simply waiting. Suicide killed 30,000 people a year. What else could I try? That's when I discovered rip currents from a pamphlet in one of the community centers. It wasn't something I had grown up with in Minnesota. Rip currents drown more than 100 people annually. We call them riptides or undertow, and such ignorance compounds the danger. Rip currents have little to do with tides. They occur at the surface, not below it. The most striking thing was that rip current deaths were almost entirely preventable. Know what to look for, the U.S. Lifeguards Association said. Know what to do if caught in one. Sadly, most didn't. They were dancing now at the larger of the two parties. The dozen boys and girls moved about on the beach with the loose limbs of people feeling their beers. They were lit against the fire and glowed in the languid dusk of Florida. The lifeguard chairs were empty. Signs warned rip currents were a feature of the beach. Swimmers beware. But these notices, like color-coded threat levels, faded into the general haze of menace. One of the girls broke from the pack. She was dance-running, wagon-wheeling her legs and arms like a gidget movie, dancing down the beach to the high-tide line of seaweed and past it. She turned around, running backwards, calling out, Come on, let's go in! She walked into the surf, up to her ankles, no doubt feeling the inexorable pull of the water, the tug at her legs, and the exhilarating way the water surged past her in a fury. I could feel the tendrils of water, too. I could hear its seashell-to-the-ear rush. My jaw clenched so tightly it hurt. 
I had to will myself to relax my whole tense body. I picked up the life-saving boy and tether. She walked a step forward and stumbled. I thought she might fall in, but she recovered and retreated from the water back to the damp tidal zone. I grit my teeth again. Come on, she called out again. Hey, over here! She semaphored her friends by the fire. Hey, she called out. She tugged her shirt over her head. What's a girl got to do? She pulled off her shorts, kicking them dramatically up the beach. She put her hands up above her head and did a 60s twist in her bikini. Hey! It was enough. A boy broke from the clutch of dancers by the fire and ran towards her. She didn't see him at first, but then squealed when she realized she was getting what she wanted. She splashed five steps into the water until it was above her knees and then dove. Her friend was perhaps 30 feet behind her when she went under. When she resurfaced, she was double his distance out to sea. The riptide was hauling her body away. I saw her in my binoculars. The disbelief. To be in the grip of something so terrible. Her arms went up as she began to panic. I held that moment of time, handling it like a dirty gem. And then I bolted towards the sea. One movement of running and diving and finding the current's arterial rush, the vortex light sweeping the choppy water. The current dragged me out with it, the cone of light slicing the tops of jangled waves. I heard her screaming, panicking in the terror of being carried out to sea at night. She was traversing the angstroms as I was perhaps 40 feet from her. I marked her position and bent to a front crawl, I'd almost reached her when she sank. I dove under, the light punching that bright beam into the murkiness. I caught her face and body in the beam, a gauzy smudge of sinking white. I swam to her, grabbed her, and kicking powerfully, pulled her to the surface. I held that moment, her empty face. The two of us caught in the current's ride, her body over the void. I kicked to tread water and breathed into her mouth. Nothing. Again, a sudden cough, a wretched gasp, a vomit of salt water. I held her as the water bore us, her heart beating a thousand thankful beats a minute. I wrapped her arms around the float and swam cross-current until we were out of the riptide's force. We reached shore about 500 feet from where she dove in. Both parties of kids were at the surf, baying at the sea. She looked up at me as I carried her. The electrical charge coursed between us. Oh God, she said, and she began to cry. I turned my head towards the clump of teenagers at the sandbar. Holy shit, Jeannie, an out-of-breath frat boy said as he ran to us. He looked up at me. Did you see Butler out there? There's a guy who went out there with her. Keep her warm, I said. I ran purposely to the parking lot. I picked up the binoculars, scanned the sea back and forth. No one was bobbing in the waves. I knew I'd have to leave. The boy, his name was Burton, he was gone now. He had already traversed the infinitesimal space. I shook uncontrollably as I threw the telescope and bag into the car. 
I was moving as quickly as I could, fumbling for keys while the supercharged moment replayed itself over and over and over. My mind raced with the opportunity of other beaches, other tides. Then, a blaze of light and roar froze me. A crack of raw brilliance opened in the firmament, and the bright seam ripped upwards. I looked north. It was Canaveral, a rocket creeping upwards. I blew out my breath. I coughed a laugh. The nervousness and energy fused inside me and fizzing. I wanted to smile. The rocket's fury was already dissipating. That some would think that the apple was actually out there in the cold, black void. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Fresh New Shorts. If you enjoyed this story, rate us five stars wherever your podcasts are available and subscribe for more. You can find the ebook, A Physicist Guide to Love, on Amazon. Come back and give us a listen again. <laughs>